So here we are, podcast at Ducks Deck Go Cold Feet, uh, number five with James Winslow, professional race car driver. You've probably done a lot of things, which hopefully we'll hear about today. But firstly, welcome to Adelaide. Thank you. And what were you here for? Uh, So we're here for the Asian Le Mans series. Uh, Round two of the championship was in Adelaide at the Bend on the big 7.7 kilometre circuit. Um, Yeah, we just finished our race last weekend. So it was a bit of an eventful weekend for you? It was, yeah. We had a few car issues. I think I got seven laps in total for the whole weekend. So it's lucky that I'd been around the circuit before. Um, Yeah, the race didn't go 100% our way. Um, I was here racing with my European team. Guys I raced with at Le Mans 24 Hour this year. Um, yeah, and it wasn't a great start to our Asia Le Mans series campaign, but we've got two more rounds, one in Malaysia in two weeks' time, and then Thailand. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully we can uh, have a better showing. So basically, if you actually win the Asia Le Mans series, you get a ticket into the 24-hour Le Mans? Correct, yeah. Yeah, the big race in June, the Le Mans 24-hour. Um, if you win European Le Mans series, Asia Le Mans series, or American Le Mans series, then the team wins. I think the top two teams win their ticket to the 24-hour. Instead of paying to get in? Yeah, well, it's an invite-only process. Okay. So there's 60 entries a year for that big, probably the world's biggest race. Um, yeah, 60 entries. I think 20 or 30 of them qualify from winning races and championships throughout the season. And then if you're a WEC full-time competitor, then you get an automatic entry. So most teams miss out on the opportunity unless they've won a series. Okay, so it's a lot more to it, and it's amazing that actually chose the Bend to come to for the first time outside of Asia. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic to come to Australia, as you say, the first time outside of Asia. Um, yeah, they tra- all the European teams travelled all the way from Europe to Australia, which is obviously double the distance to <laughs> most of the circuits they go to for Asia Le Mans series. Um, but I think er- everyone really enjoyed it. Uh, the track's fantastic to drive. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was a good decision from the organisers to come all this and, way. And it was fair to say, I spoke to a few of the drivers. Everyone seemed very impressed with the Drivers facility. loved it, yeah. You've got Formula One drivers, Le Mans 24 hour race winners um, yeah drivers from every discipline in mo- motorsport uh, yeah gave the track a big praise yeah, yeah. They really enjoyed it yeah and it was, it was actually a pretty good event it was good to go out and had reasonably good <coughs> weather considering the weather that we have had so we've yeah. either been burning or fires or That's we've right. actually been uh, raining so no yeah. rain here at the moment we've had just small bits of rain but well, it rained on the Friday briefly. We missed one of the FB1 sessions for rain, uh, but at least it wasn't 40, 45 degrees. I think it was like 25 to 30 for the rest of the weekend, so the weather was really good. So it dropped down to perfect. So I, I guess, you know, I can hear an accent there. I would probably want to go back to where, whereabouts were you born and, you know, what, what started you? Was, was, was it always race car driving or was it always wanting to drive things fast or that just happened to be? What, what sort of was your turn of events from a kid? So, born in Eng- England, London, Walthamstow, originally, moved to Essex when I was young. Uh, my dad was an amateur racing driver, used to race in Formula Ford at Brands Hatch and always followed the Formula One. So, from a very young age, he was always taking me to Le Mans and Silverstone and Brands Hatch for the Formula One races. So, I was kind of addicted by the age of six. Uh, he started me in karting when I was nine and then, yeah, I've been racing ever since. 36 now. So, I think my first race, I was 11. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like taken over my entire life ever since then. It's kind of what I do now. I don't know too too much else. <laughs> so it was from the age of nine, 
Is that what you say? Started yeah, to yeah. My first cart was at nine years old. Yeah. So that was is obviously your father. You went to watch your father and seeing things that he was doing. Um, I think no. He actually gave up his racing when I was born. He couldn't afford a child and a racing car, <laughs> yeah. so um, he gave up when I was born, and then um, was obviously still into racing a lot. Um, and I, can't, I guess I'm living his dream at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and that uh, and that. Is an interesting dream because anyone that knows anything about motorsport, it doesn't matter how good you are, it's expensive. It is expensive, yeah, to get your foot in the door and to get out there and <coughs> show professional teams that you're good enough to be employed one day. You have to spend an awful lot of cash to um, yeah, promote yourself and learn and get, get the experience that's going to make you a professional driver one day. So being your first event from the age of nine... How were you when you started racing? We actually did you have some talent, or did you believe you let that talent along the way? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think so. I think I won my. I've won, in in England, they have like your first six races. You're classed as like a P plate here, a black a black plate over there. Uh, so I won my fir first race. I think there was only five people in my class, uh, yeah. but I won the first race, got my first trophy. Um, yeah, and. Yeah, I think I got a, I got an advert in the, oh, sorry, an article in the local paper. So it's kind of from that very, very first race win, that very first race was where it all started and you kind of get addicted to the success. Yeah. And then you keep pushing for more and more. And then when karting ru ran out, wasn't 100% sure how I was going to move into cars. Uh, but man managed to find a local sponsor from a local pizza company, which a helped. Pizza bar. A pizza, yeah. And so I, so what, how, what age were you, were you then? Uh, I was 17. First race was in 16, picked up my sponsor when I was 17 when I got my driver license and I became the local pizza delivery boy, sponsored on my race car by the pizza company and delivering the pizzas. Are in you evening. serious? What was the pizza place called? Uh, it was called Mama Dale's Pizzas in Whitton, Essex. <laughs> <laughs> That's class, classic. So you actually yeah. were delivering pizzas yep. and then scored a sponsorship for your actual, what car was that back then? Uh, it was back in Formula Ford. So I started racing at the Silverstone Racing School, uh, which I then went on to work, work, work at. I won the championship in 2000. Um, yeah, in you start to see the drivers that you were at the race school with, and they some went on to be world champions and Formula One drivers. So, yeah, it was a it was a good schooling, and it was um, yeah, it was good to get that first sponsor off off the ground, the pizza company that helped me made it make it all happen. So Silverstone, pretty amazing racetrack. When you're talking, well, a lot of history with the racetrack at Silverstone. Yeah, yeah, I went on to move up there in the end and became an instructor. Um, and as much as I was racing, couldn't really afford to take it all the way to Formula 3 or Formula 1, which was the ultimate goal. Um, so started to work as an instructor at Silverstone, Brands Hatch, moved to Silverstone, working seven days a week and actually learnt my trade, sat in the passenger seat of Ferraris and Vipers and coaching guys on birthday presents and ra ra racing school actually learnt my trade from the passenger seat and from looking at the data and the video so rather than going out testing and um, getting my dad into his overdraft I sort of learnt it from uh, and earned some money learning from the passenger seat. So when you when you were out there you're talking you know early, late teens here so early 20s when you started to actually get yep. into that role? Yeah, correct, yeah. So yeah. you predominantly stayed in the UK? or in Yeah, yeah. I was there. I left the UK in 2007, uh, came to Australia, um, had an Australian career, went back to America, um, had a life and an indie career, indie lights and Atlantics and a bit of IndyCar, Champ Car in America, 
and went back to Europe, raced in Europe, and eventually came back to Australia again. So I've been in many, I think I've raced in every continent. Um, You've almost raced in every category of car too, by the looks of it. Yeah, I've been quite fortunate, yeah. Not, not, not only that, that you, you know, you've won a few championships along the way. Your first, did you race in the A1 league? Yeah, yeah, I represented Great Britain in A1 GP back in 2007 Seven, and eight, yeah. yeah, until it fold, folded, which, which was a shame because it was a really good series. It was the World Cup of motorsport and it was Australia versus Great Britain, New Zealand, all the countries in a Olympic style competition. It, it was a great series to watch. Yeah, it was really good, yeah. Like, that was yeah. really good racing. It was a shame it collapsed. I'm not sure how or why it did actually because I, it had a big fan base. Yeah, um, I, I got a jacket from that. Yeah, I'm yeah. The cars were great to drive as well. <laughs> I don't know how I picked up, but I've got a, a, <laughs> a green and got an Australian team jacket from, and it's a cool jacket too. Yeah, but it's a pity that's no yeah, longer around. Colors. They were great cars as well. They were actually Ferrari Formula One cars from two thousand and five. Um, chassis was Michael Schumacher's uh, last championship win in a Ferrari. Exactly the same cars, uh, just with a slightly de detuned engine. I think they were a hundred horsepower less than the F one cars were, and it was all run by Ferrari. So it was a really good experience there for the six months before it folded. Well, was that only six months? Was it? It was a year. Yeah, they had the Lola. They oh, had, yeah, okay. Uh, like X Formula yep. 3000 chassis and cars yep. with Zytec engines. And then in the final year, they upgraded to the Ferrari, which ultimately, I think, put it under. So, when, yeah, funny about that. So, when did you realize, like, at what stage of the game did you think, oh, I want to do this as a living? I think from the day dot, really. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, from those er early days going to Brands Hatch, really, which was our local circuit to where I used to live in Essex. Uh, with my dad, yeah, I was kind of 100% hard set on being a racing driver. So um, there and then, yeah. Come and from your dad, a, what sort of support was your? You have is your mum around or? Yep, mum and dad. Dad, yeah. mum so, and dad were both massively supportive. Dad used to give up every single weekend to take me to the go go kart track. I don't think we really thought it was ever going to turn into a professional career. Uh, we we're a very working class family, so the funds were tough to come by. Um, but yeah, I just put 100% in and. Always believed I could make it. Now I look back, I've realised maybe that was a bit optimistic at the time. But if you keep following your dreams and never given up, it, it seemed to um, come off. And I've been very fortunate to have travelled the world. And I think we've won nine titles now. And yep, yeah, you've won quite a few. Well, you've won quite a few championships as well. Um, and currently, uh, I've got you as an LMP3 champ at the moment. Yeah, yeah, we won the title this year, LMP3 series in Asia. And a GT3 title for Mercedes also this year in Asia. What's the FRD series? Uh, that's an Asian-based series. Uh, they bought, I think, 20 LMP3 cars, and they basically, um, yeah, I've had pro drivers. It's been going for three years now. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of pro drivers from all over the world. And, um, yeah, we do ba battle against each other, basically. So when you look at how, how you've just, you know, you obviously had some good backing from your dad and mum to support you to actually give you a chance at that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my dad, mum and dad put everything in really, which in the beginning wasn't too, too much. But and then if I was fortunate enough and dedicated enough to win some races uh, and then it kind of once you start winning some races in Europe and England, it was like being on the crest of a wave and it just sort of kept carrying me on. And I was fortunate enough to get some some good PR with a couple of uh incidents that happened around me yep so uh, well one of the did you win an um did you win a 
F3 yeah. British, the British yep. F3. 2004, I won the yeah. British series. Yep. Uh, and then I went on and that led to, in fact, winning the British series in no. 2004. That's kind of what started my career, really. So I was in a Class B car and we won the championship outright. Um, and then I got an offer to come to Asia. Um, there was a big sponsor in Asia that put me in the car, so I didn't have to find the half a million pounds or whatever it is to do like another season of F3. I won that series in Asia. That led on to coming to Australia to do the Melbourne F1 support race. Uh, managed to win a race there with Bruno Senna winning the other race. So he was a high-profile F1 driver to be in the next yep. cu- cu- couple of years. So that was another good profile builder. And that led to me then coming to Australia, winning a couple of Australian F3 championships. And, yeah, I think in total now we've won 86 Formula 3 races in, in my career and we've we won four titles in F3. So oh, that's, And that's an amazing, it's an yeah. amazing result. That was a good apprenticeship then. You can always, you know, when you fail in your next step or the money dries up or offers weren't there, it was always good to fall back on my F3 career. And that sort of led to me driving NASCAR and Champ Car and IndyCar and GP2 and LMP cars at Le Mans 24-hour. Do you find the changing from the cars? I mean, you're talking about open wheelers to NASCAR. Like, do you find that they are very different in the way that they're yeah. driven? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's like every single car has got like a different drive, drive driving style. So, when I was a young kid and I thought I was quick and I was winning races in F3, I thought that's it. I've got it nailed. Now I'm going to F1. <laughs> I've got the I've got the style. And then the following year, driving different cars, and I realised that there is a lot to learn. And I was, yeah, just on the in the early days of what I needed to know to be a professional ra- racing driver. Again, going back to the coaching and the instru- instructing, I could then relate, uh, change my styles, and had to learn how to drive all these different types of cars. And it's very different compared to like a Formula One car to drive in, or an, an F3 car compared to a V8 supercar. The driving style is one hundred percent different a bit like being a break dancer compared to a ballet dancer it's <laughs> an interesting way to look at them very different yeah yeah even even <clears throat> like the wolf the i'm driving a wolf gb and i used to have the west before that and driving the radical i mean they kind of look the same those cars but they all drive styles are very different yeah yeah even and if you have the same car on a different tire yeah there's a different drive driving style to get the most out of it you can drive any car one way and be 80% there, but that last 15, 20% comes down to a very particular style. So with you, I've noticed you're actually really good at being able to get an amateur like me and say, oh, this is cars doing this, like where I don't, I can't quite explain to you what, I can tell you what it's doing, but you can sit there and go, oh yeah, that's because it's oversteering, understeering, or you're catching it, or, or you, yeah. you've always got another reason for it. Yeah, or, yeah, I think because that's all I've done since I was nine, you end up sort of been able to tune into the car and seeing what's going on. So, for example, yourself, when we've been wor- working together when you are on pole position at Eastern Creek last year or yep. setting your lap re- record yep. here at the Bend on the international yep. track. Yeah, thank you. Um, yep. 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 Yeah, I can see you can drive and you've got the driving skills. Um, and then there's just a few extra little areas that my experience of 20 years can sort of like help me tune into the car or set the brake bias or see if it's a like slight understeer into oversteer or the opposite and help to tune the setup of the car as well. Well, I mean, that's I've noticed that and let's face it, I've, it's amazing how many seconds I've pulled off my times solely because of the coaching. Yeah, yeah, it can help. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with F1 engineers, race against F1 drivers in my, in my life and you do learn a lot when you're driving with the very best in the world. 
Um, and then when you come to like a local series in Australia or national series in Australia, yeah, you've kind of learnt some things over those years, hopefully, um, <laughs> that you can yeah pass pass along and help others. Well, you came into the the you came into the picture <coughs> when you're looking at how you came to Australia and, and you go to the different tracks around Australia. How like you see you've had lap records absolutely everywhere. Almost, I'd almost go as far to say almost every track in Australia you've got a lap record. I think in one thing or another, I might, yeah, yeah. I've come close. So, something there. It's like, oh, yeah, that's Winslow, yeah, that's Winslow. That, yeah, okay. So you, you do drive cars very fast for what they are, and when you compare yourself to, like, a Formula One driver, for instance, what sort of... How, how much different is someone that I class as a professional driver, which you are, how, how, how far away are you from a Formula One driver, for instance? Oh, that's a bit of a baited question, but... No, it's a good question. Um, <coughs> yes, one I ask myself a lot. <laughs> um, I would say it's, it's close. It depends on what genre you're in. Like a F1 driver's done, say, F3, GP2, F1. So he's trained in one genre of racing. If you stuck an F1 driver into a V8 supercar, like Jacques Villeneuve and a few of them have done, they would struggle because yeah. uh, they have to then learn a whole new genre of driving. Yeah. Um, I've raced against a lot of F1 drivers in my life in karting, I raced against... Med- uh, Vettel at Macau and a lot of world-class drivers grew up racing with Lewis Hamilton in karts and at that that point you're all the same maybe they've got you know they've they are extremely talented drivers um, but you need the funding they had manufacturer support or Red Bull behind them from a young young age and then they're kind of manufactured into this one genre of driver um, and then they excel when Lewis Hamilton's obviously become one yeah. of the most, the second most successful driver in history, and possibly might even surpass Michael Schumacher. So, to answer your question, um, if I was to jump or a professional the same as myself with the same experience was to jump in an F1 car now, it would probably take. I mean, they've been driving these cars for over ten years now, so they're yeah. particularly good. But um, in my opinion, not too far away. Um, <laughs> and if you had, if you had six months of testing and experience, I'm sure. You'd be talking tenths as yeah. opposed to seconds away from it. And that's the thing. That's the crazy thing about motorsport. It, that's how close it is. It's it's funny how you, you can get a bunch of guys and girls in cars, and yep. you go for qualifying, and all of a sudden you're all within seconds of each other, depending on how big the field is. And yeah, that's that's the thing that I'm. I was actually amazed by because I always thought, oh yeah, I can drive. I'm alright. Like I, I loved. I wanted to do car. I did do carts when I was just out of school and basically had no money to, to to race. But then I was more interested in partying and going out. So I sort of, you know, driving is actually a good clean sport because you you know you have to be on the straight and narrow. You have to make sure you're getting early nights because you driving takes a lot out of you. One hundred percent takes a lot of focus and you have to train. You have to be light. You can't be heavy in the car because that's more ballast um, yeah you have to go to bed early you have to make sure you're fit because the races are long and you're pulling lots of g-force and a lot of people think driving a race car is easy just like driving their car down the hi- highway but when you pull in 4g um, and the sort of forces you almost have to be olympic fit to, yeah. be, to drive these cars to a high standard and the last yeah. race i had it because you're you're pretty much an enduro driver and the last race i had the first time i've had a race for an hour and uh, i loved it 
Uh, to me, that's it. Seems like uh, it's a, it's almost like you're meditating. It's the same breaking. It's you know, yes. It's you actually switch off from everything that's going on, and it's yeah. It's it becomes r- unco- unconscious driving. Yeah. The first few laps of a race, you're hyped up and you're in tune with what's going on, and then gradually it becomes unconscious, and you're doing things in reaction. You don't even realize you're doing them. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you prepare yeah. for something like that? Like, so how do you prepare? For you know, Age of Le Mans series race week, what, what what's that sort of look like? Well, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be, be driving these cars since 2013 now, and done Le Mans four times. So, a lot of the skills that I have now uh, have been learnt over years and years and years. Um, but for example, over the Christmas period, I've just been back to the UK. Um, you have to train every single day, even on Christmas Day, try and burn off the burn off the turkey yeah. <laughs> so you don't get heavy uh, which is easy to do in a freezing cold England when there's when it's dark, yeah, dark outside sure. and not like, much it's like exercise winter everyone stops yeah so yeah training um, making sure you're focused on the track that's coming up next so you watch the onboard you're looking at the data you can't really afford to let the rust grow and it grows quick so if you have three weeks out of the seat uh, the rust is the easiest way to Think, think, think of it is that the rust gradually grows, um, and the longer you're out of the seat, the rust increases. So, the more you drive, nice and polished, uh, yep, the skills so are. It's like anything in life. Yeah. So, we have sim- simulators. I have a simulator at home, or I did well, not before I moved. <laughs> but um, training on the sim is very important, watching the onboard videos I believe you've got to simulate yourself yep. when you do training so yep. you know how Love important that. I think that is so before going to a track you know racking up about a hundred hundred laps or so so when you actually get to the track it's it's almost yeah. identical well it, it is identical in the visual aspect of it yeah and I think even if you know the track um, you're still just like polishing up on your skills uh, but if you go to a brand new track which you've never been to before these days uh, the sim is replicating the whole track. You can download the circuit. And for example, here at the bend on a 7.7 mile uh, K sur- circuit, drivers from Europe were spending hours and hours on the sim. So they arrive on their first lap and they they know the braking points, the gears. They know if it's a left or a right. This track's got brows and undulations, so it's hard to see what's coming up next. Yeah. So it's critical to yeah be have a sim and train on the sim, especially with the young kids now. They're all they're all visual personalities because they're also used. To playing computer games and stuff so yeah to, to focus on that and uh, drive the sim and tune into the track that you're about to race at is really important so that's the visual side of the things is that you know do you follow a diet or like you do you actually have a training schedule or are you you know do you put it together yourself or do you have a coach or in in the past when i've been driving for teams i've had a dedicated coach a uh, trainer um, I had a nasty accident about two years ago, so I've probably trained more in the last year and a half than I ever did before uh, to build up the I broke my back and I had to build up the mu- muscles again. Um, I was laying down for f- well, about four and a half months uh, in a brace uh, when I broke my back, and I was amazed how quickly your muscle wastes away um, when you're just lying there and you can't move, and a brace keeps you stationary. Um, yeah, I lost all my neck mu- muscles that had built up from the age of nine from driving these sort of <coughs> vehicles. But wouldn't it, doesn't that gain nothing? Uh, when I'm laying oh, down. When you're, when you're not doing it. Yeah, so. when I'm not moving at all on the sofa for four and a half months waiting for the bones to heal. So why are you talking about that? That was um, So that was your crash in 2017. That's right, the end of the year. And yeah. uh, we're hopefully, if you can send me that on board. No, we've seen it, actually. We'll play it, actually, so you can see it. 
That that is a fucking horrific accident, and it was a big one. Yeah. So do you want to do you want to talk us through? We've got you at about two hundred and forty. You were travelling. Um, yeah, that that's what? correct. Yeah, I was at Abu Dhabi Golf Twelve Hour. We'd won it the year before, and we were trying to win it again. We were in the number one car, um, and basically had a complete brake failure. So I think I was five hours into the twelve hour. Um, I was in my second stint I'd been driving for about three hours was coming towards the end of the stint and came into turn 11 on the back straight uh, 240k's and the brake pedal just went straight to the floor it's like that number one nightmare for every racing driver that it's the one thing you don't want is no brakes from high speed um, and it was a tight hairpin corner so from sixth gear in a first gear 240k's brakes went to the floor nothing really you can do now in these like uh, there's no it's just a paddle shift there's no handbrake yeah. there's no ejector seat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the only thing that could have saved you yeah, there's no parachute because that that's at 240k's an hour like you know the average person hasn't been over 200k's an hour and you're on a you're on a um, you're on a racetrack albeit well well and good it it said that it, it registered 41 G's I think it was more than that I think it was up to 98 G's because 98G was where the sensor stopped working. It so was huge. It was huge. I, I've been lucky enough to be in a jet, like a stunt plane, pulling 9Gs on a yep. Red Bull stunt plane. And that was amazing because that person was in control. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine the thought. Of, so what do you actually do? You obviously tried to turn. or What, what was going through? Your, obviously, you would have had brake failure before being a driver. Yeah, I've had... Yes, I have had brake. I've had a crash before with a brake failure at Sepang in V6. Um, very similar, actually. I lost rear brakes, the same as this. I was on an F1 track again, so both times probably saved my life <laughs> because F1 tracks are, have higher safety safety standards compared to a Grade Two track. Yep. Um, so yeah, Abu Dhabi. Um, I thought it was a concrete wall that I was about to hit full speed um, I tried to turn the wheel but there's a barrier on the inside pressed the brakes a few times checked that my foot was pressing the right ones yeah. um, down shift shifted to try and get some engine braking um, and that's about all I could do I think I scrubbed off about 20 or 30 k's it was I think three and a half seconds from the moment the brake went to the floor before contact with the wall I was quite lucky that it was uh, the Protec barrier the F1 barrier not a concrete wall uh, they have like a couple of layers of this slightly softer barrier it's still hard uh, but it just um, absorbs some of the impact um, so yeah I was very fortunate it hit the protect barrier that barrier for sure saved my life um, and now we wear a hands device which stops your head going too far forward in a big impact so that would have that saved me breaking my neck and now all the forces get thrown somewhere else so it just compressed and I got an impact fracture as, as your spine compresses um, as I hit the wall there, yeah. So, uh, broken spine, broken sternum, broken yep. wrist, damaged spleen, internal bruising. Yep. It says you, you obviously had a concussion. In the video, you actually, you literally hit the wall and move like straight up. Obviously, there must be adrenaline. Something, mu yeah. you literally moved 100%. straight away and got out of the seat. Yeah, I can remember the whole thing. Um, the exit of the car is on the right-hand side because you sat on the right in these prototype Le Mans cars. Um, that door was blocked because I was underneath the Protec barrier, so I got out to the left over the passenger side. 
Um, and then I passed out after. So I had a concussion. I think the adrenaline passing through your system, I'm always scared of fire <laughs> in, these, in these cars if you're upside down or in the wall hard. Or I was involved in a fire years ago. So I got out of the car as quick as I could, which is what you're not supposed to do if you've got a back injury. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I hadn't damaged the spinal cord. I'd just broken the bones. Um, yeah, jumped out the car and passed out after when I was um, safely out of the, the car that's full of fuel. <laughs> Is that fair to say that was your, that's the worst accident that you've had that one? Yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah. That's the only crash I've ever had where I thought, yeah, this is definitely game over. Yeah. And then everything after is a, a bonus. So your recovery back, because uh, I think I was around you when you got first back into the seat. I think it was at the bend. Yes, it was. Yeah, um, it was in a radical, I think. Yeah. So mm. what was that? Was that a? It was. It was a very short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably too short. I think uh, when the painkillers trick your brain into thinking you're okay before you are. So um, yeah, I jumped in two or three times. Um, yeah, before I was probably 100. percent um, Obviously, uh, your adrenaline and your instinct and your passion to drive again and not lose your career is is quite strong. Uh, so I think that got me back in the car and back competitive before it would have done if I didn't have so much drive to to be a racer. So what period of time was that? I think before I was 100% was probably in in the car was probably eight months. Yeah. I drove after five months, um, but I was kind of still in pain and. Yeah, it was after that that I got my personal trainer and started to work on the muscles around the in injuries that have taken the pain away. Yeah, I, it, it's a full-on crash. We'll, we'll play it so you can watch it because it was like, whoa. So you've had a few things with your career. I mean, obviously, predominantly talking about racing. We talk about, well, I like to talk about food a bit every now and then. Yeah. Um, there appears to be a lot of people going plant-based these days or vegetarian and I, I jokingly say I'm, I'm vegetarian plant-based or whatnot but since we we had a chat with James Newbury here and he was he was amazing to the way that he talked about just eating the food and how he looks yeah, after okay. his health blah 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 it's very and important it's, it, it's extremely important because yeah. I'm not one for uh, like I, I train to eat see so that's where I'm a little bit different <laughs> And I like sauce, so there's no doubt I like some condiments on it. But he, he was talking to value, especially on race week. That's probably the time that you need to make sure you're, you're feeling at your premium. Is there anything that particularly you eat if you're racing or do you just eat whatever? Because you I mean, don't seem to eat much, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, a few people have said, said, said that. Um, I find, yeah, on a race weekend, what you eat is important. Obviously, having carbs an hour or two before you drive, so you burn enough what's in your stomach whilst you're actually in the car. But I find more importantly for me is, um, yeah, just just trying to eat healthy uh, when you're tra traveling, because obviously I travel from England, around Europe and Asia, Australia, so I'm always jet lagged. Time Timetable is always upside down. So to eat healthy when you're tra tra traveling is actually very hard. Um, if I'm back in England and I'm home with the parents, then it's easy because my mum's like my private chef. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it easy. Vegetables and fish. Um, but yeah, just sticking to those, to that diet and that healthy living and eating is yeah critical. So when you're driving, so you, you can eat well, what, what do you have in the car? Do you have a cool pack or do you have an ice pack? Will they have the ice packs? Or in GT cars, we have a cool suit, yeah, to yeah. try and keep your, your core temp, temp, temperature down. In, in Asia, it's important. Obviously, Australia as well. Um, they don't have them so much in Europe. Uh, so when the Europeans come over here for Asia Le Mans series, they're all 
they all boil in the car and <laughs> you see the, see, the, see, the, see the teams start trying to invent new ways of crawling their drivers with uh, paddling pools outside their garages. Yeah, I saw so, that. Yeah. I saw that at the Ocean of Monsters. There's a pool there. That's right, yeah. So they'll fill that with cold water and when the drivers jump out after an hour or two, they'll drive around these cars with, with roofs and engines just a few millimetres behind them at high temp- temperatures. The drivers are boiling, so they just jump out and jump straight out with their, with their race suits on into a... A cold pool. And what sort of temps are get into in the cabin? That's a good question. There's uh, temperature gauges in there, and you're not supposed to be. I think it's, I think it's ten degrees over cockpit over ambient temperature. The cockpit's not supposed to be warmer than ten degrees over, um, but it gets hot. That's all I know. <laughs> it's probably fifty degrees at some point. So I did a two-hour stint at Sepang a few years ago in an LMP2 car, and I can't remember the last twenty minutes of the stint. Um, I've just got photos of me out of the car, half passed out, with my each arm in an esky, trying to trying to cool the blood cir- cir- circulating around my body. Um, can't even remember the stint. I was just trying to aim for five five hours in front of sorry five laps in front of where I was just to try and get through the race. Um, but we got through it and we came second in the race. But <laughs> I can't actually remember that part. So what's the longest stint that you've had in the car then? At Le Mans, I've done a I think a three hour and fifty minute stint. Um, which is a long time uh, to keep focused. But Le Mans an easier track. Like the Bend, for example, has got 35 corners um, over 7.7K. Le Mans has probably got 20 corners over 14Ks. So you drive longer, but there's less work to do. There's big, long straights where you get up to like 330 kilometers an hour. So but you have time to, is that you, like have time you to, have time to... You have time to rest and you're not, not putting G-force G when you're going straight. It's the corners that wear you out. So each circuit is, ta- is, each circuit is, is differently taxing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like a small track like here in Australia, like Wakefield or Win- Win- Winton is more exhausting than uh, a long track like Le Mans. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> tracks around the world, what's, what's been the best racetrack <coughs> that you've raced on? I mean, everyone says Spa in Belgium. Uh, that is extremely good, especially in a downforce car like an F3 car. Um, so Spa is one of the best tracks in the world. The Bend, the long track, um, That's cool. that is extremely good in an aero car. Um, Road America, uh, Elkhart Lake, yeah, fantastic track there. They're probably my, th- my three favorites. That Road America, that's not the Texas F1 track. No, no, that's in Austin. No, yeah. this one is Elkhart Lake, which is Wisconsin, I think. Okay. Uh, Road America, fantastic track, yeah. A good racing track for what would you race there? Um, what did I drive there? I drove a historic Formula Ford there years ago, um, and I raced Atlantics there, and I drove the Indy Lights car there. Um, that's cool. like in Ameri- That's like the American favorite track. That's like the spa of America. Okay. Ups and downs and fantastic corners and high speed stuff. So, group of cars. What's been your favorite category of cars to race? Best car I ever drove was probably the Champ Car, which was IndyCar back in two thousand eight. Um, the series merged again and became IndyCar, but there was IRL and Champ Car. It was, I think it was like 850 horsepower, huge turbo on it. I'd come straight from Formula 3, straight to Champ Car, which is like F3 to F1. Um, and I was doing over 200 miles an hour for the first time in my life, and I did five laps, and I jumped out of the car and all smiles to the team, went over to my dad and said, Dad, I don't think I can do this. My brain's not fast enough to keep up with the car. <laughs> uh, but then after you've done 10 or 20 laps, your brain adapts quickly and you start everything starts to slow down and you can start to process the images that are going through your head at such high speed and 
that's probably that's probably the most fun car I've driven ever. So have you seen the electric series? The e? Formula E? Yeah. I have, yeah. Yeah. What what's your take on on that? I mean, I love don't get me wrong, I love I love I love engines, I love the noise and everything like that, but I do love my Tesla. Yes. I, I like I, your Tesla too. <laughs> I, like it's amazing. Like it's it, but w- when you compare the Formula E series, well, I'm, I'm guessing you have to compare that to Formula One because that's the electric alternative. Obviously, they're nowhere near as powerful as the Formula One. No, no. So obviously, um, all the manufacturers and the governments around the world are trying to Get clean it. everything up, and um, yeah, the most economic way of racing and but they they attract, attracting a lot of the XF1 sons or you know basically the, yeah. the, the kids of. Formula One drivers. Well, all the manufacturers are behind it, aren't they? So you've got Audi, Porsche, they're pumping in heaps of cash into... In fact, they've like pulled out of Le Mans racing in some areas to like focus on Formula E. The cars are not particularly quick, and I think the batteries at the moment, the race, they have two cars for a one-hour race. So they do half an hour yeah. and one, they come in for a pit stop and yeah. change cars. Um, and they're on treaded tyres, they're like on a road tyre. Uh, so they're not massively fast, and they don't sound they don't sound like what we're used to racing cars sounding like, um, but it's high-profile, and they're definitely working hard on trying uh, to make it successful and what's making them successful they're very good with their marketing yeah they're, they're not afraid to ask their fans what they want and no. they're, they're rocking yep. up into big big like city yeah. centers hong and kong and london yeah. right in the middle of the city right in the middle of the city where we yeah. we we had a good event here in adelaide <coughs> uh, um I, I forgot what it was, the Motorsports Festival, which was in the city, and it, we didn't get it this year, but it was because it was in the city, it was one of the best events that we'd had here in Adelaide. Yeah, that's where the crowds are, yeah, that's where the people are. Correct, because the they'll come to the city rather than go out you know, an hour out. And, and bear in yeah. mind, you know yourself, an hour to a racetrack's not very far at all. No, <laughs> not for what we're used to. For, <laughs> fa- for a fan to get out there, you have to be pretty committed to the course, yeah. as opposed to if it's in your, in your front garden at Clipsall or somewhere local if you're in Adelaide and it's, you know, like a 10 minute walk or a 10 minute drive then it's obviously much easier to get a huge fan base along so committed to the cause you've you've been in a lot of tracks and where do you think the most hardcore fans are from japan's pretty big yeah you go and race in japan and the fans are super passionate i've had fans that follow us all around the asia le mans series and even over to england and they have they come up with like special presents for you and um, well, they cook food or something. Or? Yeah, they bring you cookies and stuff, and some of their food, some of their spe- their foods that they have in Japan. Um, yeah, they one. I'd, I'd say the Japanese fans are probably the most committed and passionate and super nice. And they get right into it, which which I guess is only makes gives the sport more strength with what you're doing. Because yeah. one of the things I've seen with motorsport, it seems that it's hard to get. Yeah, and talking about the lower level, maybe not not V eight supercars or so, but any other motorsport which most people are driving, it seems hard to be able to get interest of families and fans at a track because if you weren't really into motorsport, you could technically say it's quite boring. And yeah, it's definitely um, a better sport to participate in as opposed to watch (laughs) (laughs) without a doubt so how do you think what's have you got any ideas on what you think is the perfect combination moving forward to you know like for instance you used to have test match cricket and that's all 
And then now they've turned that into, they did the one dayers and then the one dayers have 2020. So they've tried to evolve. So tennis have five setters. They've now, do, they've, they've now done some yep. tournaments where they go to three sets where it's a bit more yep. punchy. Um, golf, golf's in the same boat where people don't seem to want to hang around a whole day anymore. No. It needs to be short and sweet and keep people's attention for half an hour or an hour, doesn't it? Yeah. Attention span. So have you, you, it probably hasn't crossed your mind, but have you thought of how you think motorsport could be better, better for the family that comes? Because for me, it's the most selfish thing I do. I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's good to keep the kids entertained, isn't it? I've seen in Amer- America at the IndyCar races, they have bouncy castles and kids' parks and the dad can go and watch the race and the kids have got somewhere to go and play and they enjoy going to the track. Not They see kids see cars for 10 or 20 minutes and then they're kind of bored yeah, of it. Yeah, they're done. Um, and then they have lots of entertainment at the IndyCar races in the States and that works really well, really, really well. They get huge, huge crowds there. And it's a family event, not just a guy's event. Um, so the whole family can go. So maybe that's something that Australia needs to do. Is like we need to be a bit more accommodating to families because I've so. got two young girls on like five and six, but yeah. they love coming to the cars and playing. But there's just that small period of window because motorsports a lot of downtime. It is. It is one hundred percent. Yeah. No, I think focusing on entertaining the whole family as opposed to just one member of the family would make it a lot easier to get along. Um, yeah. And do you think that's possible? I think so. I think there's a few things. Like, I think the A1GP did a very good job of having the cars in their country's colours. And it was country competing against country. So everybody had a team to choose for. I think having someone you can go for is important. Um, yeah, entertaining the family, making it a family sport as opposed to just a, a male interest in sport. Yeah, I, I think it needs to have a major... Uh, there needs to be a change to, to get it more family orientated. And having some things like the castles or, you know, having entertainment, because it's particularly the kids. And because motorsport, there's a lot of downtime. That's the hardest part about motorsport is is you're on in the car for whatever it is, 30 minutes or hours or whatever, and then you seem to have three, four hours doing nothing, and then it's 30 minutes on. I think you mentally have to be extremely strong to be ready that you know that whole period of time when you're in part ferme you're waiting to go out then you get there and then you wait for the it's a very mental game and i think you need to be very strong and that's something you learn over the i think the years and years of doing it where you can switch it on when you need it and then even more importantly is to switch it off so you save your mental energy for when you need to perform again switching it on and off yeah is important so so for me i'm I love running amok at the track, having fun, engaging. But as soon as I close my visor, that to me is like, okay, oh, that's that's shake thing. and bake, baby, shake <laughs> and bake. And that that was that's how I do it because I can clown around all I want. But as soon as I put the visor down, for me, it's a switch yep. to switch on. I think I'm the same. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think I go into um, uh, self preservation and wanting to win kind of mode. Uh, but when the helmet's off, you can be friendly and charismatic and joke around with your racing competitors. Yeah. But the moment the hel- helmet's on, it's like that guy's not coming past. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are, you're you're one of the first people that that told me that you know you've been racing blah blah blah. You actually, it's a weird sport to actually be, be told that oh you know what you have the right to win here and that's. Because when you first start, you start at the back of the pack, then you get to mid-pack if you're lucky. And 
there's always a couple of guys that you think are in your mind are quicker. And you were the first one that basically said, you know, you've got what it takes to win. You need to yeah. understand that so you know to take take a win. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think if you're fast in pra- practice or you've had a few occasions when you're in the top two or top three, or yourself when you had your pole position at Eastern Creek a couple yeah. of years ago or last yeah. year, whenever it was. And then if you're on pole, you're the fastest guy there. You deserve to win now. If you've got race, race craft and you can keep your focus for the half an hour or the one hour race, whatever it is, then you should definitely be winning the race if you're on pole. Yeah. Um, if anything, it's easier to, if you're in second or third, because the pressure's off then. Um, but if you're in pole position, you've set the fastest lap, you've beat all your competitors at the most important part of the weekend before the race, then your mindset's got to be looking in the distance and trying to pull away from these guys that you've just beaten in qualifying. So how important to you is quali? Because you know, you've got qualifying, which sets you up for wherever you're going to start. How important is it for you? I think in sprint racing, like what you yeah. participate in, in the Australian pro- prototype series, it's important. You need to qualify somewhere near the front and the first lap or so when people are on cold tyres and trying to warm their brains up to get back into the mode. That's critical then because you can make some spots up or lose spots very quickly. Uh, so in sprint racing, that might only last half an hour. If you've lo- lost a spot, it's very hard to get it back again because everybody's going to be fighting hard and not wanting to give you an easy crack it um, endurance racing a 24 hour qualifying becomes a lot less important then um, and the drivers that get selected are drivers that are good over the long distance that don't make mistakes you don't necessarily are chasing those one or two tenths like you are in a sprint race um, so yeah sprint racing qualifying is critical endurance racing when you've got three drivers and it's the average it's less important so if you if you could have <laughs> some advice for an up-and-coming driver and you know, what advice could you say that you've had over your last 36 years that you can turn around and go, you know what, I wish I knew this when I was 15? Um, I think because I do coach a few young guys and there's a guy, Daniel Frost or Harry Jones, that I've helped from a young young age and they're both becoming professional drivers as, as we speak. Um, I think it, I think the number one most important thing, like to be successful at anything in business or racing or any sport, you just can't give give up. When the when times are tough, uh, you just got to keep positive and just keep charging ahead. Give it one hundred and ten percent. You're always going to have bad days, and in fact, you probably you probably learn more on the tough days and the tough times than you do when things are going well. If you get it too easy, I think uh, you don't learn that strength in your character to be able to pull pull through when things do get tough. So I don't know Daniel, but I know. Had Junior Harry, yep, Harry Jones, and you know I think he's 19, 18, 19. Yep, and his demeanour, the way he presents himself, he's a freak when you look at it. He's extremely mature for his age, which I think anyone who's going to perform well in sport is. If you see all the guys who have um, from young ages that have done well, Tiger Woods or the exception, you know, exceptions yep. to the sport yep. are always super mature for their years, and Harry is um, very, very mature. He's got a very good temperament, and I coached him for uh, two years there in Formula MRF and Formula Three. And now he's just about to become a professional driver, in my opinion. He's been racing Porsches. He's won Australian Formula Three GT3 yep. Cup Challenge yep. here in Australia. So yeah, he's going places. He's definitely got what it takes. And for me, I look at someone like that, and I see the way he goes through his data, the way he handle, he knows what he wants for setup in a car, and I think that's the sort of kid that should be driving F1. Yeah, he's methodical, he's smart, he's doing his degree at university. uh, Engineer, but the reality is, even as good as he is, the chances of getting an F1 drive 
are extremely, extremely thin. Yeah. I saw an article in the paper in England uh, which said Lewis Hamilton probably had £20 million spent on him before he ever sat in an F1 car. So £20 million, which is, what, 38 30, million yeah. Aussie. Um, yeah, so... Mm-hmm. It, it, and it's becoming harder and harder each year. So for yeah. Harry, for example, um, yeah, he's investing m- money now in his in his future career, and he sort of like stepped aside from the F one dream early. Yeah, you know, no, that's what he has. Because I'm, I would say, if I had fifty million bucks, I'd be giving it to him to put in F one. I don't know how I'd get that back. Oh, yeah, but, but he he seems it seems that the number that they talk about for F one is that you need about fifty mil to bring a sponsor on board with fifty mil. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it kind of works. Yeah, you need either uh, help from the family or um, from a big sponsor. Like your dad to own the team, that would help. Yeah, yeah, or your dad to own Red Bull or Mercedes (laughs) or Williams or some kind of, some. yeah. You need to find the funds from somewhere. The car, someone has to pay for the the tyres, the fuel, the track, the personnel. It's a very expensive sport, Um, but it can be done. Lewis Hamilton came from a family with nothing, the same as myself. Uh, We used to race race our local go-kart track. My dad used to help him get his go-kart off of the roof rack off of their cheap car that they had back in those days. Uh, His dad was smart um, and sold Lewis as a future world champion to Mercedes and McLaren. Yeah, and within a few years' time, he was at the track with a 40-foot lorry there and um, mechanics from McLaren setting up his (laughs) go-kart. So he was going places. So it can still be done, for sure. Do you think it can be done now like that? Yeah. Like with the, you know, you look at the kids of today. I I look at the F1 guys because, let's face it, F1 got really fucking boring for a while there. And, you know, you can blame Schumacher because it was just so boring it was winning. But... then you look at a last, you know, couple of years ago, and then Netflix come out the doco Drive to Survive, where my wife hates motorsport, but she freaking loved that series, okay. and she went, "Oh, that's why you do this." And I'm like, yeah. "Yeah, that gives you a little bit of a taste of how it really is." And you look at the young, the racing of the last seven rounds of F1 last year, 2019, was probably yeah, it was good best racing I can remember seeing yeah. you know I rate it on am I asleep or awake by the end of the race because <laughs> right? in Australia we're always getting up at stupid times to watch it True. and I'm a bit of a tragedy I like watching almost every race yeah. there's a couple that are too far skewed and you watch the driving and the drivers coming through and they appear to be having the time of their fucking life <laughs> like yeah. The Nan- young Nando, and, yeah, yeah, all those guys. The, Nando and and Leclerc, like these guys are having yeah. a ball, and you know Ricardo definitely he is having a ball. You know, people said, "Oh, why'd you go to Renault?" I mean, it's pretty simple. He got paid a fucking lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like like literally, I, I, for me, it was a pretty easy step because he was never going to be number one driver at, at F one. Yep. Because they're the golden child Verstappen, Verstappen and yeah. and he can drive. And, sure. and he even Verstappen, I think, was a 17 mil contract as the number one driver. And Ricardo's out there for, I think, 50 mil for two years. I mean, it's yeah. a pretty easy decision. It, I, I mean... I think so, yeah. As a racing drive, you've only got a certain shelf life, right? So he'd had a few good years with Red Bull One races, pole positions, knew he wasn't going to be the number one choice in the team to go to Renault, which has been world champion in the past and has got, you know, with a big manufacturer, which has got potential for the future, yeah. 
it may, it's a no-brainer. And okay, they they weren't race winners in the first year, but there's a long-term plan there, I think. And eventually, it'll do a full circle, and they'll they'll be the new Mercedes in a few years' time, I think. So, have you got to meet Daniel? No, we I raced in the same series as him years ago, uh, but never. He's probably one of the F1 drivers that our paths have never crossed. Of crossed paths with a few. I love people. him. I've got a good Daniel Ricciardo story. You want to hear it? Yeah. Uh, so we're at Melbourne <laughs> F1. Okay. Um, we were there with Philip Morris and I think they're Ferrari. So we're there with Philip Morris and they had a pit tour. And we went down and they said, all right, come pit tour. We got down there and I was like, oh, we got our times wrong. I said, all right. So I had a Ferrari hat on in the Ferrari box, like okay. blah, blah, blah. And we were driving back and that, I was vlogging stuff, like I was sitting on the back of the golf cart. And someone goes, oh, that's Ricardo. And I was like, what? And so an Aston had pulled into the car park, okay. inside of the track car park. I said, stop. So I jumped out. I ran down to the car and I, I looked, oh, Ricardo, I love you. And he, and he goes, gay hat. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. I ripped it off and threw it away. And I said, sorry, Megan. Like, and he goes, that's better. And he was, I want his fucking champion. Like, first, gay hat. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was so fucking funny. I, I, I felt so embarrassed because I didn't even think I was so starstruck. But he, he was rocking up just at the track. Yeah, uh, in yeah, an yeah. Aston, so that's Red Bull. He must have been a Red Bull. So. The good thing about Ricardo is like he's kept two years, isn't he? Formula One hasn't changed him. At and all. He's still fun and he's still himself and he's uh, not lost himself like some drivers do up uh, their own behinds. And, <laughs> you, and you can sit there and, and watch the way he drives in what he has. He's, I think he's an amazing driver. And yeah, I'm a little bit biased because he's an Aussie, but. I, I love watching him drive. I, I, he, you know that he'll give it a go. Yep. It's just a. I think the, the difference of the cars is a bit too... Yeah, I mean, his teammate Hulkenberg's exceptionally good, has won Le Mans and would have won races if he was in a good car in his career, and he's outshone Hulkenberg, which was not going to be easy. So Ricardo's exceptionally talented, and, and he's still fun, and he still enjoys it, and you can tell he's enjoying life, which, which is important. Eh? Well, uh, we'll come back to that, because I want to talk about F1, but yeah, it, it, enjoying yourself totally makes a difference on how your life's going. Yeah. And yeah, we sure. recently spoke with um, Jason Roberts, and he talked about having food and occasions and family time and people that you're friends with is just as important to a healthy life than yeah. they're not doing it. For sure. And when you watch the F1 group, guys, and I mean, our series for the Australian Prototype Series... Everyone gets along. Like, we go out to dinner with each other. I've seen that. And, and we have fun. Like, you know, we don't all agree with each other's driving styles or, you know, if there's any lunatic missiles in the group or anything like that. But we, we sit there and we respect that. And, you know, whether you're Mark Lauke, 70 years old, or, you know, whoever's young, or, or Jason Macris or whoever, you sit there and you have a great time because... You are away from your family, so whoever you're socialising with, it needs to be important. 100%, yeah. Whether you're a professional or an am doing racing because you just love driving, driving cars, um, you, have, you have to enjoy it. And the people you're racing with and the team you're with and the, the guys you're with every weekend, say for me when I'm travelling around, and it's crucial. Yeah, you can end up in a coming away from a good week, weekend unhappy or you can sometimes come away from a bad weekend very happy because of the people you're with yeah. and having like, the time of your life, which is the way it should be. We're privileged to be able to drive these things and you know do this as a hobby or a li lifestyle. So I think it's important to yeah, really enjoy it and enjoy the people around you so you do see it with some racing divisions categories 
It's a bit serious. Most. Okay, <laughs> yeah. most. And in fact, my, I, and that's what you've said to me in the past is, mate, you guys, this is, your, your category is not quite like how most No, it is are. different. Yeah, you're all friends. And yeah, I've been out for dinner with you guys a few times at events and stuff. And yeah, it's great. You, uh, there's a good camaraderie between the drivers. And yeah, everyone talks to each other in the pit lane. Uh, when it gets too serious, um, people, people stop talking. Talk. You don't want people near your race car in case you see what springs or setup you've got. It all gets a bit too serious. So there's definitely like a happy medium, and yeah, you just have to has to be personable, and people have to be able to interact with each other. And especially when I'm not a professional, like <coughs> I, I do it because I love it. I love going fast, and the best place to do it's on a racetrack. Yeah, yeah, the safest like, place and the, the only place you can do it right is on uh, a racetrack. So. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh, but the only place you can do it comfortably without getting caught by a cop. Uh, that's pretty much the main reason. Yeah. And go around corners as fast as you can. Like It's a buzz, isn't it? It's a big adrenaline buzz. It is. You can't beat it, I don't think. You cannot beat it. No. And the thing that it knocked out of me is I used to be a bit silly in a car. Um, no doubt about that. And t- to be able to race, I just totally get that bug yep. out of my system. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it makes... It's a safe way of doing it, isn't it? Yeah. And Fireproof that's, suit, helmet tracks runoff gravel traps the, marshals the, the irony <laughs> the irony of it is is it's so expensive to do the safest thing that it, you, you should be doing True. and i guess racing's not for everyone like i've seen people come into the series that you have to be mentally you actually have to have some mental stamina to race and yeah. it's a very it's not something people anticipate that when they come into yeah. race and i you need smarts, you need to be able to focus, concentrate for long periods of time. You need to really want to do it as well because you have to get up early, you have to tow the, the race car to the track or, yeah, for sure. You have to dedicate a lot of time to it, so yeah. So when you see the, uh, the F1 kids, guys, they all still have dinners together on the Wednesday night. Yep. Like, I think, I think unless, it, uh, well, the photos you see, they, they're all at dinner together. Um, I, think, I think that's just the PR stunt. They oh, just take that one picture. <laughs> <laughs> I no mean, shit, maybe it's more like that. My <laughs> maybe it's more like that now, but for sure, it's F1's pretty killer and pretty hardcore. I think, the, as you say, like the Carlos Science and the. No, like, they're, they're, they're making it more fun and Formula One since Bernie Ecclestone's um, not in control anymore I think they're trying to make it more fun and uh, fan friendly and trying to change the image of F1 from being super straight and super boring so you look at the F1 guys Charles Leclerc like yep. um, Nat watched that Drive to Survive. We were with yeah. we were with Philip Morris, and we get to have like lunch, a little lunch with Charles Leclerc. So okay. Matt's like doesn't fall hug, like hugging him. Matt, I said, and we were right near where the toilets were. Okay. So I said to Nat, I said, one thing I can guarantee you: every driver is going to go to these toilets before before they have to go out to. Uh, and then there was Max Verstappen <laughs> came through, okay. <laughs> and Nat ran and grabbed him. Uh, I've sent you the photo so you can pose that, and full hugs him. And he's like, oh, and he just started laughing because it was, she was like bear hugged. I go, it's okay, she's my wife. <laughs> that was so funny. But the, the guys are all, they're all pretty cool. Like, yeah. they even look, I got my claim to fame is photo of Lewis Hamilton. And Nat goes, oh, that's a pussycat dolls guy. Like, that's Lewis Hamilton, get my camera. Yeah. And um, his manager was shooing him off. And he said, Lewis, got to go. And he goes, no, 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 we'll wait. And then Nat turned the camera off and... 
like a one second photo turned into like 30 seconds yeah yeah but Lewis is cool like I've I've raced with him and I spent a week with him in Melbourne back in 2013 when he came in for the Grand Prix and when you just see things on TV and it's all pretty straight laced and when people are wound up in the car they say things that but when you like spend the time with him, I raced with him years ago and I saw him again for this week and he was exactly the same as he was when he was a kid. Yeah. He's just super nice. Do you nice recognise him? Yeah, yeah. No, I was I was with him for the whole week because he um, lost his licence. He, <laughs> oh, he did the burnout in the Merck. <laughs> what a legend. That's, so I that's... drove him around for the week. I hung so, out with him. Yeah, no, it was cool. And he so, was super nice to everyone we met in all the restaurants, the concierge at the hotel. He was like just 100% normal, the same as he was when he was eight years old racing his, his cadet car at Cambridge Car Club in Hoddesdon in England. Yeah, so, so for people that don't know, he that is what got him back <laughs> in my good books. was when he got busted doing a burnout on Ligon Street in one of yeah. the Mercs. Obviously, he just won the F1 race. He's doing a burnout. And unfortunately, the police didn't see it that way and impounded his car. <laughs> that is fucking legendary, and that that is pretty cool. I think you should be allowed to do that, shouldn't you? If you've just won the Melbourne Grand Prix, you should be able to do a bit of a I, burnout in I, your company car. 100% agree. In regards to Formula One drivers, who is, I don't know if you have got an old favourite and a current favourite, but I'd, I'd like to know who you, in your eyes, who are the best two, like an old school. Senna was always my favourite. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's kind of, I think Lewis was the same. I think and Senna, we grew up with him winning races and being the legend that he, he still is. Um, yep, Senna, and then probably Lewis is my favourite driver. Um, obviously, I raced with him and did bits and pieces with him, but when I spent that time with him, I realised he was still really nice guy and normal, and he's been so successful and dedicated to the cause. So, yeah, so previous would be Senna and... The, and current day would be Lewis. Lewis, yeah, I, yeah, it's no doubt Senna and that, the doco, that Senna doco really explains what sort of a guy he was. Yeah, yeah, he was totally driven and yeah, it was win or bust yeah. all the time. Yeah, so win it or win it. You've got to respect that a little, little bit, I think. Yeah, that's, um, in regards to the drivers now, I, like, you know, you see the couple of the young kids coming through, but Kimi Raikkonen, he... <laughs> He is the funniest um, yeah. Yeah, radio guy in on the he must is. be on the planet. I, I, do you think he tries to be, or is that? The do you Ice think Man. he is naturally? No, he is. Yeah, he is one hundred percent like that. Um, he's obviously got his brand now, isn't he? He's like he's very unique within Formula One. And he's got a lot of fans. Um, but he was racing Formula Four back when I was racing him with James Courtney um, and a few of the, the, the other guys. So I was there for his first Formula Runner races and Formula Ford Festival at Brands Hatch and a few nights out with him when he went at the Silverstone end of season Toka party and stuff. And yeah, seeing him drinking his vodka and some of the things you still see him doing yeah. nowadays on his yacht at Monaco. Yeah, and even now he says like, you know, he's he's not afraid to talk about, oh yeah, we've been partying like in off season. Like, you know, it's not like you know we, they train hard. These guys, these are the Formula One drivers. There's no doubt they're fit. They're super fit. Kimmy seems to be able to get away with stuff because he's so good. <laughs> Somebody, he's not really, well, when he first <laughs> broke into F1, he wasn't particularly good at talking on camera and PR and didn't really care about looking at data and working with his engineers, but he's just got so much natural talent that he got away with it all. <laughs> yeah, and, and that day, the day of the kids coming through now, like you, you talked about simulators before, you mentioned you've been on probably the best simulator that you can go on in the UK. 
uh, Le Mans has, yeah uh, before you do the Le Mans 24 hours you have to go and spend 8 hours on the Le Mans simulator I think it's like a 2 million euro sim uh, some really good software and it's like you're actually there it submerses you straight into um, as, yeah you feel like you're at Le Mans you have to pass um, you have to drive at night you have to drive in the day you have to follow some of their strict rules that they have at Le Mans slow zones and um, those types of things uh, the three different safety car uh, scenarios that could ha happen so yeah the, the Le Mans sim is the best I've ever been on yeah so Great that training. so that is if you want to race in that so that the pinnacle of like you've got the pinnacle of Formula One racing obviously yep. that's Formula One <coughs> sprint yep. racing yep yep so the pinnacle in enduro racing is the 24-hour Le Mans correct yep and it's if anyone wants to do an enduro race you see a lot of F1 drivers that finish F1 they want to then come and... Who was the last person? Alonso won uh, Alonso, last he, year. Yeah. He, he came and won it last year. So then they go and they, go, they want to compete in the 24-hour Le Mans. What yep. is the driver structure for... Do they have three drivers? Like they've, you've, you've heard of having three pros and then that's the Pro-Am Le Mans. And then most teams get two... Um, what do you like? I'm like a business driver. What do you, gentleman drivers or yeah. or C? What, what they got a bronze license? Or yeah. Could you guess it? There's like four the different gradings: as bronze, silver, gold, and platinum for the driver gradings. Uh, platinum is F1 or X F1 drivers. Uh, gold, what are you? Gold and silver. I'm gold. Um, if you've won an F3 championship, you're automatic gold. Or if you've been in the top three in a championship, so you're gold. Silver would be like the first level of a pro driver. And then you've got the bronze bronze driver, which would be an AM, someone who doesn't do it as his full-time job, but he's still, some of them are extremely good. Like some of the the, bron the bronze drivers are as good as silvers and the slower golds. Uh, but it's just, just a way. bronze though. Yeah, because in this style of racing, you have to have a silver or an LMP3, you have to have a bronze. Um, so it gives pros a good job for the fu fu future after they've retired from F1 or from V8 supercars. And it means that the bronze drivers can compete at the biggest events in the world, like Le Mans 24 Hours and race LMP2 and LMP3. And it becomes a really good mix then. So if you don't qualify for that, like for how many cars are in Le Mans? I think last time it was like 60 cars. Yeah, it used to be 56. They extended it to 60. So it's been going since, what, 1910 or something like that. It's been going a long, long time. I think it was 87 years, is it? Really? Something like that. Let's have a look. Yep. Um, so, yeah, 60 en entries. Uh, probably 10 of them will be LMP1. 1923. 1923, right. The first 24-hour Le Mans race in France. Yeah, right. And interestingly enough, they got the hybrid car that I think is now banned from everything, yeah, the 919. Yep. Is that the the Porsche that they don't let at any tracks anymore because it doesn't fit any rules and regulations? Okay, it's too quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so they really they got rid of all of the. Um, like they they change them quite a lot. Like the, the cars that participate have changed the rule. The ACO changed the rules here and there between GT cars and LMP cars over the years. So on the track you have the LMP. Is it LMP one or is it yep. just LMP two? LMP one. LMP one. LMP two. Yeah. And then GTE. Which is like a souped-up GT3. Which is, what was that, the Age Le Mans? Were they GT... Uh, so that's Le Mans 24-hour, and then you've got like the European, the Asian, and the American series, and they have LMP3, LMP2, uh, and GT3s. So that's to qualify to get to that 60 on the grid to the most prestigious race. 
which is the 24-hour Le Mans in France. Correct, yeah. That's like mid-June. That's the longest day of the year, which makes sense for the, the longest race in the world. So that mid-June is the, the longest day of the year in, in Europe. Okay, so to get part of that, let's say you, you don't qualify. Like, let's say JP's got JP Racing, right? Yep. And I've got, I've picked a couple, I've got you as a driver, if you haven't got a drive, um, that I'm going to drive, and I'll just grab Macris. <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. How much would it cost us to do that event? Um, so I think the teams, if you're going to do it in LMP2, for example, you drive like pro, pro prototype yep. cars, so an LMP2... Uh, would be the obvious choice. Um, so I think the teams probably spend, once the car, the teams have bought the cars and the engine leases and all that type of stuff, I think just the cost to run the event is about 700,000 euro. Um, it's a 24-hour race, so the car needs a full re- rebuild after. It's done like a season in one weekend. It's a two-week event as well. There's a test day. The team's there for two weeks. You have practice, qualifying, night practice. Um, so it's sounding expensive. It's getting more and more expensive yeah. <laughs> every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's sounding so I think just cost is seven hundred thousand euros. So you're probably looking at a million euro once, once you've taken everything into consideration. Yeah, for one race. Yeah, for one for the biggest race in the world, and there's like three hundred thousand people crowd. That's I think not it's, bad. Yeah, that's huge. There's like. Yeah, huge viewing figures around the world. So, but no one. I'm assuming no one. Well, you can't do it. You said you can't bring a team in it. No, you, you have to win a series. So you can't be a brand new team. You have to have competed in one of their championships. Okay. If you're doing WEC, the WEC, which is the World Endurance Championship, then Le Mans is one of their rounds. So you automatically would get an entry to Le Mans, um, and that's yeah, LMP1, LMP2, GT, the same. Um, and if you're in European Le Mans, Asian Le Mans, then you have to win to get your to get your ticket in. So you can't win a race; you've got to win the series. Win the series, yeah. For your automatic entry, you have to win the series. So that's full on. That's hence why it's one of the best there. Yeah, it's worked out quite well for me because I think four, yeah, all four of my Le Mans drives have been with the Asian Le Mans series champions. I participate and whether we've won the championship in Asia Le Mans or been second or third the team that's won the ticket has then chosen me as one of their drivers so so what's been your best result Uh. so I've won this is the positive first I've won (laughs) I've won quite a lot of championships (laughs) of races but Le Mans 24 hours is the one race that's haunted me so I've had the fastest lap of the race in 2014 Uh, I started the race was in sixth place fastest lap of the race and then there was a there was a shower and my teammate crashed on his outlap on slick tyres on a wet track and then in the last three times of doing it we've had gearbox and alternator problems and just haunted so yeah I thought it was going to be third time lucky and then I thought okay well if it's not third time lucky fourth time you know the odds are getting better and better (laughs) (laughs) but it wasn't quite to be so so I'll keep trying until until we're standing on that podium that's been my life and my whole career goal has been to win that one race um or obviously wanting to get to F1, that hasn't happened. I've been lucky enough to have done everything else, won a lot of stuff, experienced some great things, but the one thing left in my career now is to win that Le Mans 24 hours, and I'm I'm still pushing and got the drive, the same as I did when I was 18 years old. So, so still hunting for that big one. Yeah, yeah. With regards to something that happened for you in 2018, 2008, so we go back. So this is going back a few years. Yep. Is this another crash? This <laughs> no. This this wasn't your crash. Yes. 
Thankfully. Or did you actually cause the crash? I didn't cause the crash. Okay. Yeah. So so what what happened? So so this is um yeah this this is where we've seen it on BBC's doco. So so yep. you've like got a, an award for this. So it must have been a great crash to begin. Well, I've never got an award at a crash. It was a big one. It was a big one from Marino Sopraptor. Yeah. So it was F three Asian Asian Formula three series two thousand and seven. Um, yeah, I qualified on pole position, made a bad start, uh, lost one position. The guy coming through from third place to try and take my position um, as he was jinking out at the last moment to try and overtake me, just caught my rear wheel with his front wheel at probably 160 miles an hour. So quite fast. What, what, what's that in kilometres? Oh, I know. That's <laughs> 220, that's like 230. Two, yeah, and basically did the same as what Mark Webber did at the Singapore Grand Prix on Cova Line years ago, where he clipped the back and did a somersault over the top of him. So Moreno clipped the back of my car, somersaulted. As I was driving through the corner, I could lo- look up to the right and I could see his helmet, and his car was completely upside down. No halos back then. No halos back then, no. Yep. no correct. He landed, somersaulted, did a huge, it was a huge crash, massive. Um, and then he got wedged in the car, stuck between the barrier and the gravel trap on the floor upside down. Um, the engine was half hang- hanging off, fuel was pouring out, water was pouring out. There was yeah, the car was in a mess in half. Uh, yeah, I stopped and helped him get out of the car and just did what anybody else would have done in that si- situation. I think, um, and the car burst into flames just as he was just as we were in there. I undid his belts and he fell out onto the floor and he was sort of half conscious, half not. Um, the car burst into flames and. The whole car burnt to zero. The whole carbon fibre was completely evaporated in the end and the tyre barrier caught on fire. The thing was on fire for four hours. Um, it was ironic because uh, Moreno's father runs the track. It was owned by the Sahatos in Indonesia. Uh, Jakarta was the circuit. Um, yeah, so Moreno was out, safe, just some light burns on his neck. I had a singed suit. Um, he was fine. We started restarted the race. I got to take my pole position back, which was fortunate because if they'd have run it within half an hour of the red flag, I would I would have been a DNF and not been allowed. So to they start. redid the, the race. Yeah, yeah. We restarted restarted the race. Moreno obviously wasn't in it because his car had disintegrated by this point. Um, yeah, it was good for me. I went on to win win the race. It was one of them we- weekends that was quite pivotal in my career because. I won the race, uh, which led to me winning the championship at the end of the year. And from helping Moreno escape from his car, I won some awards, uh, got a lot of coverage in the motorsport press, and it launched me into a bit of a profile within England. The BBC did a documentary, got invited along to Buckingham Palace and won an an award from the Queen, the Royal Humane Award. Um, Yeah, for something that, to me... Didn't ever feel like I really did anything that special. Just helped to make it out of a car because yeah. he was in a predicament, and yeah, and then got massively rewarded for that. But yeah, yeah, the footage of it is uh, you, there's good footage of that too, which is I'll try and show that. So we, we obviously like talking about food, and you know you haven't. You, I I noticed you don't eat much. When you go back home, what's the favourite dish that your mum cooks? Favorite dish is yeah. mac and cheese, macaroni oh, cheese, but that's so not my healthy good. dish. Oh my god, that's be- that's I my love e- mac and cheese. Me too. Like, that's that's my d- favorite since being a kid. So does she do any alternative with that? Like, have you? Uh, she won't tell me. Have you had the Gordon Ramsay? Have you had the Gordon Um You've been to Singapore, or is it Bread? I think that's Ramsay's restaurant, right, and not, they not they do a mac and cheese there, and it's a it's a short rib mac and cheese. Oh. 
I'm going. Oh, I just think about it and uh, it makes me hungry. So that's one of my... Yeah. That I love mac and cheese too. Yeah. Don't there's nothing wrong that's awesome, with that. is it? If you go to the states, they do it in every single restaurant. They do it everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's very I know. addictive. Yeah, and that's <laughs> yeah, and you keep wanting to eat it. Yeah. So, do you want to drink by any chance? I'm good. So, is it when you travel? You mentioned earlier about how hard it is to keep in track with um, keeping healthy. Yeah. Because it is, especially when you go to an airport and you're sitting waiting, and yep. you know, there's all these. You get different time. So it is quite difficult. Is there something that you particularly like eating when you're tr- trying to keep a, a health regime as well? I find it much easier to eat healthy when I come to Australia. On a race in America or England, it's the takeaway foods or it's much harder to get healthy food when you're on the run, um, in you know, on, on the move. Yeah. Um, favourite food, if I go back to my mum, my obviously the mac and cheese is my favourite dish, but she... Uh, cooks me generally most days there when I'm training and healthy like a salmon or fish and vegetables yeah. and all that type of stuff. She makes it taste good. So <laughs> yeah, eat, eat, I, eating my greens is easier with, when my mom's around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because she's cooking them as well. Yeah. There'll be no dessert. So do you find that you've been away a lot of, of I'm assuming, your childhood uh, yeah. com- compared to most people? Well, you have to actually, yeah, do you find you had to trust certain people or did your parents think it was okay that there were people in the, in this, in the motorsporting industry that would be looking after you or is this, I can look after this? Um, from karting, I was always with my dad, Formula Ford. Parents were there most of the time, but then when I went overseas, yeah, it was kind of going out on my own and packing my bag and leaving. So 2007, I left the UK from being there full time, although I raced in Asia and stuff. I was always going back home. And not living with my parents then, but I lived in Silverstone. Um, but when I left in 2007, I never actually went back to the UK after that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, lived in America and Australia and spent a lot of time in Asia. Um, so yeah, you're always with a different group of people, different teams and different personnel. So yeah, it was, you sort of grew up pretty quick then. I, uh, learned how to wash my own clothes and make my own <laughs> mac and cheese and stuff <laughs> like that. I'm assuming you've met some interesting people in your time, whether it be a driver or a team owner or something like that, who, who has been the mo- the most interesting person that oh, wow. you've that you've met in the? I think the, yourself, JP. <laughs> <laughs> is there someone that you know you're, you're where you've met? You thought, geez, that that person actually has has had some impact on the way that you outlook or you know the way that you see life. I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of successful and very interesting people. I think much more than if I just stayed in England and I'd just be in a small circle and most people in a working class life just probably circulate with the same 20 people. But because I'm always traveling, different teams, uh, different sponsors, uh, coaching successful businessmen and kids and their families and a few different girlfriends along the way so I think what I've tried to do is I couldn't really pinpoint any one person in particular but to evolve and become the person I have and I'm definitely not the person I want to be yet but I've just learned a little bit from all the successful people and the nice people and honest trying to take certain traits from a certain you know people that I've met along along the way to try and shape who I want to become has definitely helped we um yeah that's that's soft because you didn't give me a name but um 
you know, uh, like I noticed you raced in, uh, uh, and I'm going to bring up a name. So you you <coughs> raced in uh, Jackie Chan's race team. Yes. I, I'm just guessing you didn't meet Jackie Chan. But no, I, you came I, to the race I wasn't there for. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, I, good. I, it was like the people around me had met him, and it was good to have that association. Yeah, we were quite successful with that team. They went on to win Le Mans. Actually, the one I had a choice to drive with them or drive with a different team, a French team. Uh, I drove. At that moment, I chose the French team, and we had a DNF and Jackie Chan DC Racing went on to win the race. So that oh was, my god! That was one that, of those. So another, yeah, that was the wrong path to take. <laughs> that's that your elusive unicorn uh, yeah. that you still will be going for. I, I mean, I see yeah. it in motorsport where there's lots of you know it, it is a money sport and team owners. There's some very interesting cats as team owners. Yeah, for sure. And it's really interesting just seeing how they are. And your 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 view of it is you learn something each from each and every one. It's exactly how I feel. What yeah. is it that you think is a crucial part about being successful? What do you think the number one trait is? I think it's like the Nike quote: "Just do it." the successful people with this racing business or whatever I see are the people who just, they might not be the smartest, they might not be the most talented, but they're the people who get off their butts and do it. They just do it. And if they're not successful, they don't give up. They just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And you definitely, someone said to me when I was a kid, if you, if I can't 100% remember the saying, um, but if you aim for the stars, you'll reach the top of the hills, yeah. something like that. So if you aim high, you're well, going to win. If you up. aim for the stars, you'll, you'll reach the sky. It's something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> But what, what it meant. <laughs> I like to say, you for the stars, you'll reach the hill. <laughs> well, the, the fucking hills. car can take something me to high. the hill. But yeah, okay, something fucking hard. But anyway. Have goals, aim high, and you're going to get somewhere close to running. Yeah, that's so true. I, I 100% agree with that. And <laughs> there is a big part about just doing it. And I, I get in trouble, uh, probably with the digital team, for just, just, fucking, just, just fucking do it. Like, yeah. And then worry about how we're going to formulate that afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, you've just got to do these things and chase your goals. And if you have a big goal, you have to you have to set the baby steps along the way to reach the goal. You you just got to get out there and get it going and start and take take a risk. Yeah, one hundred take a risk, and I agree with that totally. Um, when you were growing up, what was the most difficult challenge you had to overcome? Ooh, I think you're still growing up too, so this can be any period of time. <laughs> in the beginning for racing, definitely the financial challenge was a big one to overcome. Um, yeah, it's probably the yeah the money. For, a motorsport for you, and it's been money. Money. I think for most drivers, it's the money. Yeah, I, I see it all the time. I I wish I could give people money so they could follow a dream. Yeah. You see that it gets harder and harder. Yeah. But I think, again, with that's what we were just talking about earlier. If you don't give up and even if you don't have the cash to go racing, like there's a young driver here, Luke King, that I see uh, turning over every stone to try and make things happen. Harry Jones, for example. The drivers that work hard, Josh Burden, an Aus Australian driver now who's a factory Toyota driver racing for KCMG, professional, get, getting paid now, and he's making a good living out of it. Very good driver, had no funds, but just never gave up. Just started instructing, working for Mercedes Days in Australia, and just doing everything you can possible, and never giving up over a long period. You're going to get some. You are going to become, as long as you've got some talent. Yeah. Um, if you don't give up, you're definitely going to get somewhere on the motorsport so ladder. Just don't give up. That's pretty clear. Yep. If you were doing, if you were doing what you were doing, 
what would you be doing if you <laughs> that just don't tell me. if you were doing if you weren't doing what you're doing which let's face it you're driving and you're getting to drive and you it's just enough for a living i mean you're probably just getting through as a driver but it would be a lot better to have more drives you know that all comes with more money and bringing more sponsorship it's pretty clear that's how it works if you weren't doing what you're doing what would it be been asked that question quite a lot over the years and I've never had a good answer <laughs> but um, I'd like to think I would be um, doing something uh, in the snow like a skier a skier or something have this you ever is, skied this, before? yeah I love to ski oh, I've okay. skied four times but I love it <laughs> <laughs> on snow people uh, ask me if you weren't doing what you're doing that's for that. if I wasn't doing what I was doing what I'd be doing I'd be racing at fun. it would right. be the best thing in the world yeah. like you know that is an amazing lifestyle it is yeah yeah. And if you're good and you're performing well, it's like anything. Can, it's like life. If something's performing well, you, it, it, it will be shone. And if it's not, True. then you have to reevaluate what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. So for me, that's an easy one. Yep. Um, what did you wish you'd known now when you first started? How to drive a racing car officially. <laughs> 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 I think if I knew what I knew now, back in my first or second years of racing, say you had an XF1 dad like Rosberg or yep. Verstappen, and they yep. could pass down their knowledge of how to find sponsors, the business, how to drive a racing car, how to communicate with team owners, and people might be able to give you opportunities in the sport. I think it would have made a huge difference, yeah. You could have jumped up a few steps much earlier in my career. And do you think that's possible? Like, you know, what you've learnt to, to applications, but you know, I guess, you know, working out how to do a sponsorship proposal. I think so. Out. I think so, yeah. I think if you've got a good mentor, I've had a few people mentor me along the lines, which has helped. Um, yeah, I think if you've, say, for example, Rosberg, Keki Rosberg was his father, was champion in the late 70s. Rosberg Jr. was champion a few year, years ago with Mercedes. Yeah. I think, yeah, if you can pass down knowledge and introduce the good contacts and yeah I think you can have a much more efficient streamlined way to becoming a Formula 1 driver for example I think if you've got somebody <coughs> in, your, in your corner that knows the business inside out and has succeeded themselves I think yeah that's 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 a big a big help Hen hence why that's what you're seeing yeah yeah you're <laughs> seeing a lot of second generation yeah drivers come through with F1 fathers and F1 champion champion yeah. fathers yeah. yeah correct and now I saw something the other day Leclerc's having a uh, it looks like his brother might be racing too okay yeah yeah no you see that a lot so you know there's another <coughs> another one in the, in, the, in the mix as well I think it's in the genes a bit but you can be the best driver in the world and if you don't get the opportunities um, you're not going to make it yeah doesn't matter you need both yeah I agree yeah um, so this is a more f philosophical question um, if there was one thing that you could do that would have an impact on the world, what would it be? Ooh, tough questions, JP. <laughs> like no one said world peace yet. Um, we've had a, we've had um, no food waste. Um, we've had some interesting things, but it, it could literally be like if you could come back and have some actual control of an outcome of something that would make the world a better place, like cheaper to drive Formula One, or whatever, whatever the process is. I mean, it can be whatever you want it to be. Hmm. Um, I don't know, what, what would you do, JP? What would, what would be your thing? 
what would you change for a better a better world? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> It's a tough one. I actually, because no there's so actually, many things. No one's actually <laughs> asked me before. I mean, I think, and I'm in retail, so one of the biggest things I see is the is the waste of food. Like, yeah. And I'm not a greenie by any stretch of the imagination, but I really believe there it's got to be better ways for us to be able to stop the waste of, of food. I mean, you know, so we, when you say waste of food, what do you mean? Because you're obviously like the land for like. For you know, product, we put use by dates on products because of law. But the reality is, these products don't need use by dates, or you know, some do. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. you know, that's my wife. Like, you eat things so far out of date. It's like, yeah, you smell it. If it doesn't smell off, it's usually fine to eat. And yeah. but we have all these rules and regulations, which means we throw out a lot of food. Yeah. Okay. And um, the producers and farmers. They're in the same boat because we've 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 trained people to have perfect looking apples and perfect looking oranges. When one comes with speckles or is funny shape, they don't want to buy it. And okay. we're at you know a retailer's at fault for that. Right. So you and get where the, where does that go into the land the trash? Okay. You know it might be going back into the farm, pushed back into the farm, or like for us like the. the the waste that we get from from food from in stores is quite quite low in the shrinkage percent, like it's in the scheme of things. But when you put that all together, it's it's far too hard. We're throwing away way too much, and there's a lot of people missing out on. Especially if you think there's starving people in the world. In the well, c- correct, and the the reality is there is there's billions of starving people, Adam. We've only got seven billion people on the planet that yeah. we're talking. We're, we're talking hundreds of millions of tons of landfill every year, and that's Australia alone. It's amazing. So if you could somehow get that where it becomes somewhere where someone less fortunate can get it, I think it would be... Which must be possible, mustn't it? I mean, in 2020, and there's still human beings starving in the world. That yeah, seem, correct. It well, seems like if every human put their mind to it, that could be avoided. Well, very easily avoided. You're exactly right. Mm. But we, we, in our regulatory way, we have all these rules and regulations in place. You have to put this, it has to be, um, has to be like marked down, or you can't, you know, we can't even give food bank, uh, mark, like pass use by date. Really? It, and you're talking canned products, packets of chips, like all this stuff that is, you know, you can eat packet. I've eaten months behind, like months and months after yeah, this yeah. day. It's just a smell, for me, it's a smell test. So for me, that's, I would work on. Is that just within Australia or is that the same? Oh, in worldwide, so it's a, it's, oh, it would be a bigger problem elsewhere. So you can't donate it to the, to starving people or home, homeless? Yeah, well, we give, so we do things that are in date, that's fine, but it's when they're out of, so if they're out by use by date, but fine to eat, um, that's tonic water. Uh, that's Red Bull. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's what I would do. And so this is, is this your way of um, not actually giving me an answer? It's <laughs> 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 just too, too many things that you know, I'd like to improve. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's one. So I'm going to ask you again. Okay, to stop famine. Okay, so there you go. The, the one thing that you'd have an impact on is stop famine, and and yeah. that that you know that's revolving making sure people are fed, and you know yeah. it's a scary part to think that. that I think like I grew up in England with Live Aid and seeing a few of the you know concerts and comic relief in England to <coughs> stop the, the starvation in Africa and stuff. So that's always stayed with with me. So, so I'm not smart enough to know how I could fix it, but <laughs> if I could, that would be something I'm with, So for sure. to to me, everything counts, and it's just it's a little bit frightening how. 
the wealth of the planet is controlled and owned by very few people and 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 don't get me wrong those people are putting back and they are you know the the gates foundation all that is going back into helping things for good for good good reasons i'm not saying they're not doing anything it's just it's a frightening thing yeah the problem still exists see the problem definitely still exists yeah and i guess yeah it's like anything in life like if it, it, it it's what they say. If you don't have it, then you want it. Like yep. you know, and at what stage is you know you all even? I think that's communist, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I think we're a bit past that. <laughs> so if here's here's one for you. If you died, and if you had actually so if you died and come back as a board game, <laughs> what board game would that be? Now, to buy yourself some time, you can ask me. <laughs> I, I said I'd come back as Scrabble. Okay. Okay. So you never know what you're going to get. I think I'd come back as Hungry hi Hippos. <laughs> <laughs> hungry Hippos! <laughs> I used to love that game. Yeah, so that's your favourite game. So you, so you were like madly whacking I'm Trying it, to eat as many balls as, as possible. Balls. <laughs> That came out wrong. <laughs> that definitely came out wrong. <laughs> I've got a hunch I'm going to use that piece uh, for a bit. Oh, that is so funny. So, <laughs> so in the, um, you know, we're going to be wrapping it up now. Uh, James is actually flying. So tomorrow you're, you're coaching someone in Sydney, I believe? Yeah, you're off to Sydney tonight, Eastern Creek tomorrow. Yep. The coaching that I do along with my racing, uh, coaching, yeah, Garth Warden racing, some of their prototypes they've got. Um, yep, yeah, it should be a fun day. Oh, awesome. So, you know, I do appreciate you coming in. Uh, it's been great having you, having, coming, having a chat. I mean, not many people, you don't hear that much uh, long format stuff from race car drivers and people that are doing this for a living, which yeah. is a tough, you know, we, you've clearly heard that it's a tough, it's a tough industry to be involved with. It is. You have good times and bad times. You can have a few good years, but to keep it going for, well, how long has I been going now? 15 years in total. And yeah, it's hard to keep it going for 15 years and hopefully I can keep it going for another 10 years and keep enjoying the, the fruits of the sport. Well, we wish you all the best, especially for the 24-hour Le Mans. Thank you very much. Uh, I would, you know, it's even me that's an average driver. I'd love to go. It'd be definitely amazing to be in that event. You never know. We might be in the same car. That would be good, mate. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with your Australian prototype series in 2020. Hopefully you can win some more races and some more pole positions. and Take one out day. the championship. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Sh you should have won it last year. Yep. yep. Before, what was it, the last race you had an issue with? The yeah, car, I think right? Macris is the one that cost me, to be honest. For sure. Macris wiping out my rear tyre at Sydney. Uh, that was painful. I that, that gave I me miss a that zero. One, but you've told me a few times. Yeah, that. I've told Jason a few times. <laughs> Jason, if you're listening to this. But yeah, we hope to have a great season. 2020, the great numbers, they look good. It's been, a, you know, it's been an interesting start to the year for Australia. And we, we When's your first race? When's the first race of the Aussie prototype? I think it's in March. So we've got okay. a bit of time. We had that little Asia Le Mans race and we're pretty excited for this season. It looks like it's going to be interesting. For I think it'll be a more building season, but you know, we just want more cars on the grid. Like yeah. reality is different groups, more cars, that's racing. Uh, 
a few a few of the rounds, like the the bend, the first race at the bend in the Aussie Prototype Series, had a huge group, didn't it? Twenty five or yeah, twenty nine. Twenty nine. Wow, it was a. It's good to see radicals and wolves, CN cars mixed in with all different types. Of well, we should be it's driving good. together. It's ridiculous we're not, and I yeah. would love to see the LMP threes. Yeah, which racing. is eligible, right? Yeah, you can race them in your series. So. We can. Yeah. But they've been, apparently they don't want to race with anyone else. And I said, that's okay. You can race four cars and see how that is. Maybe they'll get three cars and you release uh, the drivers will get first, second or third. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the reality is I want to race with people. And yeah, I, you just want grids with, with lots of numbers on them, right? You so want to be racing against big... Everyone numbers. comes back. You don't come back. When, you, when, you, when you're ahead, it's a bit... St- I haven't had that experience much, but you come back and you're always ahead the whole time. But when you're talking about racing other people, like whether you're at the front, middle, back, if you're racing someone, you're racing someone, and that's what makes it yeah. so exciting. And that's that's, that's the part that I love. So and the good thing about the prototype series, it's a bit like WEC now with LMP1 and LMP2. Like <clears throat> you can see that some of the cars are quicker in the corners, some of the cars are a bit quicker on the straights, so you get overtaking, and it's actually really good to watch. Obviously, I've been there and coached yourself on occasions and coached Jason Macaris and a few of the other guys in the series, and it's always good racing to watch. Um, the fastest car is not always going to be the guy who wins the race and yeah no. it's interesting when you see a wolf with a, a Peugeot turbo wolf powering past everyone around you know on the straights and then you see you and your, your CN wolf flying up the inside late, later on the brakes and Honda then, 2 litre yeah it's some really good racing to watch yeah so we love it and we want to make sure that that's the prototype series for Australia because the reality is us radicals and any other prototype looking car it, we should all be on the same grid and racing together. Everyone yeah. wins in that. In that cat. In that's. Everyone wins in that. So, that's I what we're so, hoping yeah. for this year. I wish you well for this <coughs> year for whatever you with your coaching and your race. Hopefully, you know you're basically doing coaching, and you're trying to sneak as much driving in as possible. That's pretty much what you've been doing for the last 15 years. And appreciate you coming in here. And I'd like to thank you for all the coaching you've given me. That's. Thanks, Definitely got me it's a lot been, faster. It's been good to be here. It's been good to be involved. And it's good to see you progressing with your racing career and doing as well as you are. Sweet. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thanks, buddy.